Go ahead and be seated, everyone. Kids, ages four and five, up to and including kindergarten, can go to the back. Miss Kelly is there to take you to your class. Everyone else can turn to Deuteronomy chapter five. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple, there's one or two more on the back, and then there's um, a few, actually there should be plenty on the back table underneath the offering box as well uh, for you to have uh, to look at. This morning we're just going to be looking at the third commandment, which is only one verse, but I will learn from Caleb in reading uh, the context, and so I'll read from verse, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 6, and go through verse 21. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So just about everyone that I looked at in the the last 50 years at least who has written anything on the third commandment has titled it or mentioned, What's in a Name? Which shows at least that somebody knows their Shakespeare, because that's quoting Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, What's in a Name? Where she basically says, why in the world does he have to be named Romeo? Can't he be named something else and be just as wonderful? And we may think like Juliet, uh, When it comes to names, we may think that way. Oh, it doesn't really matter what someone is named or what something is named. It could be named anything else and be just the same. But if you've ever tried to suggest a baby name to anyone, you will know that it's not unimportant. What we call a thing can actually tell us a lot about it. 
whether we are given the name first before we learn anything about the thing, it can tell us a little bit, oh, it's, it's, it's this sort of a thing because of the name. Or where we know about the thing and then we find out its name and it's like, oh, that makes sense. There's a connection usually even with mundane everyday objects. Names even come to carry deep meaning for us. You know, if I were to say, let's all sing Faith's Review and Expectation, I doubt maybe more than two people would know what I'm talking about. Um, But that was the original name of a hymn written 250 years ago by John Newton. And the first line is, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So the name it's known as now, Amazing Grace, if I were to say that, you'd know instantly what I'm talking about. And you'd probably have lots of warm feelings even towards just hearing the name. So what is in a name? Well, quite a lot. And we will see that this third commandment, I read all ten of them, and there's only ten that God gave speaking from the mountaintop directly to the people. And the third shows us that God cares about how we treat his name. He forbids us to use it in vain. And we'll see what that means. We'll we'll see the various ways that we even commit it. But we'll also see by looking at God's name how precious it is that he has shared his name with us. So first we'll look at the commandment itself. We'll look at what it forbids, and then we will look at God's name and what is revealed to us by studying his name. So the commandment, often shortened to do not take God's name in vain. Throughout the scriptures, God holds people accountable for misusing his name. And what it means to take God's name in vain is to treat it as a light thing or a useless thing or a meaningless thing. The same word vain in the Hebrew is used a few verses down in the ninth commandment where it says, you shall not bear false, that is, you shall not bear vain witness against your neighbor. Vain and false. So also in the scriptures, Taking God's name in vain is sometimes referred to as profaning his name. Profaning God's name, you can sense the word profanity connected to the word profane. And it's a little different than what we generally mean today. Today when we say profanity, we mean like a curse word or a cuss word. But profane just means common, everyday. The word vulgar originally meant common, everyday. And so vulgarity and profanity originally was just using the common, everyday words. Um, And to do that with God's name, to treat it as something that can just be used whenever you like, that's what this commandment is forbidding. Because his name is not just a word to be used whenever we like. It has deep meaning. Leviticus 19.12, 
The Lord says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And it's worth noting to mention right now that when it's capital L-O-R-D or small capitals or even capital G-O-D, small capitals, that's a specific name that the, the translators of the Bible are are putting Lord and God there. And we'll look at that specific name in a little bit. But using God's name in vain is treating it profanely, treating it as if it could just be used willy-nilly. And as with the second commandment, which we looked at a while back, we have in this commandment, the third, a warning. The Lord says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now that ought to be somewhat self-explanatory, that it's not a small thing to take God's name in vain. It's something that God considers a person guilty for doing. But what does that mean for God to not hold someone guiltless? What does it mean to consider someone guilty for taking his name in vain? Well, if you turn with me, if you're still in Deuteronomy, if you turn a few pages back to Leviticus chapter 24, we'll look at verse 10. We're just in a few verses here. And there's a in Leviticus, this is a passage about um, a situation that happened. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Now, blasphemed the name. That's God's name, using it in vain. And cursed. So, then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, and daughter of Dibri from the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Right? They don't know, okay, he's broken the commandment. What, what do we do? What, what are the consequences? So they wait for the Lord to tell them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. I think that seems harsh to us. For two reasons. One is we don't really understand the gravity of sin. We don't think it's that big of a deal. And the other reason is that we don't really think that God's name is that big of a deal. But there's a reason this is recorded in the book of Leviticus. I mean, Moses, in compiling the five books, he could have put it in numbers if he wanted to. I mean, didn't have to necessarily be in the book of Leviticus, but that's where it is. And I think that the reason is because Leviticus is the book of all the sacrifices. 
And this comes way towards the end of Leviticus, this story here. But towards the beginning, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 4, um, there's all kinds of sacrifices. The first several chapters of Leviticus, but turn to chapter 4. We'll look at that in just a moment. For all kinds of things, there are sacrifices. And there are sacrifices for sin. And it's not just for sin in particular, but it's for sin. If you're the priest, this is the kind of sacrifice. If you're the leader, this is the kind of sacrifice. And if you're just a common person, this is the kind of sacrifice that you give for your sins. So let's look at verse 27 and see just if you're a common person, what what is the sacrifice for your sins? It reads, If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Now this sort of a, a thing is not on display for us anymore. And, it, and that's right because we don't live underneath these sacrifices anymore. We have another sacrifice. We have Jesus, whose sacrifice made all these sacrifices obsolete. But that doesn't always help us to see the severity of our own sins. I mean, if you had to put your hand on the head of this animal and kill it, I would assume that would would be a lasting effect. To remind you, this is what my sin deserves. This is what my sin brings about. And that was one of the intentions of the Old Testament sacrifices. To show the severity of sin. Because the only way to do away with sin was by putting something to death. So now there, if, if, if there is this sacrifice that we know... We just read in Leviticus chapter 4, there's sacrifices like this for sins. Then why did that Israelite woman's son, who blasphemed the name of the Lord, why did he have to be put to death? Well, because there was no sacrifice given in particular in the Old Testament that could atone for the sin of blaspheming God's name, that could atone for God's Name being cursed. And so there was no way to transfer the guilt of that sin onto a sin offering. Under that system, that sin, the consequences couldn't be given over to someone else or to something else. It had to be taken in the person who sinned. And that person had to die. Because all sin deserves death. And I said, this, this seems harsh to us, that there's you know, some, some sins 
You can take and put your hands on the head of an animal and confess your sins, and those sins are ceremonially transferred to that animal, so the animal can die instead of you. But others, that's not the case, and it seems harsh to us, but how many of us could quote Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death? I mean, do we really believe it? We don't immediately face death when we sin, but it is what we deserve. And that's what it means to not be held guiltless. It means that if we take God's name in vain, we're guilty. We're guilty of sin, and we're deserving of death. And that's one of the functions of this law, to show us our guilt. To show us that we're unable to stand up underneath the condemnation of the law. And that's why God gave the sacrifices to Israel. So they could cover their sins, so that that condemnation, that guilt, would not fall upon them. But as we saw, those sacrifices were not for every possible kind of sin. Which would point us to the second reality of this commandment. The value or the preciousness of God's name. Because the misuse of His name speaking it falsely, speaking it as if it were a useless thing, even living, claiming to be someone who is named with his name, one of his people, and yet living falsely, hypocritically, is taking his name in vain. If you take the Lord's name in vain, guilt is upon you. But as we look now at the names that God has revealed, we will see, as we know here, we have the names of Christians. We know that that's not the last word. He has a name, which means all guilt can be taken away. So let's look at the names now. just two right now that he gives to Moses in the books of, book of Exodus, where he says, I will proclaim my name to you. So there are two places in Exodus that will serve to show us what it, that while it might be true for us that, and for created things, that names are sort of incidental, just add-ons, uh, important to us in a lot of ways, but not necessarily at the very core of our being who we are always. That's, that's not the case with God. With God, his name tells us something very, very important about himself. So Exodus chapter 3, you know, this is Moses with the burning bush. I think we're all familiar with that, with this with this idea, this story. Starting in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is very important. It's not just for the Israelites back then. It's not just a way for them to know who Moses was talking to. He says, it's my name forever. And how I am to be remembered for all generations. That's long-lasting, forever. So what kind of an answer, though, does God give Moses? I mean, just imagine if at the greeting time this morning, you, you met someone, you know, I'm, I would say, hey, my name is John, what's your name? And that person's response was, I am who I am. It's like, I don't know if I'm dealing with Dr. Seuss or someone who's got way too big of a head. Because that's pretty audacious. But it's kind of like when you go to a conference or some kind of gathering and you've got the guy up front who's doing all the announcements and introducing people, the next speaker, and he says, and now for someone who needs no introduction, right? They need no introduction. Well, why, why don't they? Well, because their fame or their status precedes them. Everybody out there already knows who it is that is going to be talking to them. They just, they see him and, oh yeah, I know that guy. But to understand the name that God gives Moses, we also need to understand one of the purposes of naming. So one of the things that we learn is that there's something special about God in giving the name I am who I am. But what's one of the purposes of naming? Well, I'll tell you, when we were trying to name our family dog, one of them, uh, growing up, was my mom and dad and my brother and I, and we went through 20 or 30 names. Because it's kind of a big deal. You've got to really be okay with yelling this name a lot, whatever one you pick. But why in the world couldn't we just call it dog? You know, why couldn't we call this one dog and the other one dog and just not have to worry about it? Like, that's a dog and that's a dog. We don't need names. Well, because when this one's doing something wrong, we need that one's attention. And so it gets a name to make it distinct. And we had one dog named Shadow and another dog named Oscar. Yeah, you know, how kids name things, right? But when Shadow was doing something wrong, which she never did, we'd have to call her name. And when Oscar was doing something wrong, which he always did, we'd have to call his name, you know? So we name things in order to differentiate them from other things in the same category, right? They're both dogs, they both need names, so you can yell at them. (laughs) But back to Moses in the burning bush. He knows... He grew up in the house of Pharaoh with the Egyptian gods. He knows that the Egyptian gods all have names. And now he spent 40 years in in Midian. The Midianite gods have names. So, you know, what's this god's name? 
how am I supposed to tell you apart from all the other gods that are all doing things? You know, there's this category, right, that he had. The Egyptians have gods, the Canaanites have gods, the Midianites have gods, and now you're telling me that you are the god of Abraham. Well, what's your name? Otherwise, how are we supposed to know, you know, which one are we praying to? How are we supposed to know which one can solve our problem if we don't know their name? That's what's going on in Moses' mind. And so by saying in response, when the Lord says, I am who I am, he's clearly telling Moses that, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. There's not some category of gods, and they all have their own names because they're all kind of on the same playing field, and you just, you know, no. There's nobody else in this category. I am who I am. All the other gods, pay them no mind. They make claims to deity, but I am the only one who can say I am who I am. Everything else is created, changing, but the Lord is who he is without change forever. So in saying that name, we learn that he is God alone, he is eternal and unchanging. And he proves this, of course, by thoroughly trouncing the Egyptian gods on their home turf. But there's more that we learn from the book of Exodus about God's name. If you turn ahead 30 chapters to Exodus chapter 33, Moses has been with God on the mountaintop at Mount Sinai, receiving the law, and he's learned so much about God. God was, has been speaking to Moses almost as one person speaks to another person. And so now Moses makes this request of God, starting in verse 18 of chapter 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that's the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then a few verses later, we have recorded this actually occurring. Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what do we see here? Well, when Moses asks the Lord, show me your glory, I want, I want us to notice that God does not outright tell him no. A lot of times when we look at this text, we, we look at it just to notice God saying, you shall not see my face and live, right? We can't see God in full glory and live. 
But that's not the first thing God says. When Moses says, show me your glory, God says right away, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And the way that God answers that is by telling him his name. God's name is God's glory. And the first thing that God says here when he proclaims his name, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is, I am who I am. Yahweh, Jehovah. It's translated many different ways uh, for us. But when you see that, capital L-O-R-D, know that that's the name that is there. The I am who I am. But also see that when God tells him his name, more is being said here. Because God, in telling Moses his name, is telling Moses his character. In these two places in Exodus, chapter 3 and chapters 34, help us to understand what's going on when, whenever God reveals a name to us in the Scriptures. And there are many names that God reveals in the Scriptures. His name is not just a title by which we can address him. His name reveals his character. We see that he is the one who does not change, who always existed, who cannot be hampered, who cannot be hindered, who cannot be thwarted, who cannot be undone by anything or anyone at all. And that perfectly unchanging character is a character that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and yet not clearing the guilty. That always seemed to be a problem to me. Like you get all these beautiful, wonderful, it's like, yes, that's amazing, God. I, I need that. I need someone who's merciful and gracious because I'm screwed up. I need someone who forgives my iniquity because I, I sin a lot. But how is it that you don't clear the guilty? He forgives sin, but he doesn't clear the guilty. And doesn't that seem to bring us right back into the place of that Israelite woman's son who his guilt is upon him? Is our guilt upon us? Our death upon us? Well, there are so many names that God has revealed in the Scriptures. But as a conclusion, I want to look at just two now that will help us understand how he forgives iniquity without merely letting the guilty go free. The first name in the conclusion is found in Genesis 22. This is also a familiar story to many of us. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's promised son has been given to him, his son Isaac, his only son. And then God comes to Abraham and says, take Isaac, your only son, and go to the mountains of Moriah and sacrifice him. And Abraham begins to obey. He, he takes his son, he takes a couple of servants with him, and they go to the mountains of Moriah. 
In Genesis 22, starting in verse 4, we have the whole scene laid out for us. On the third day, foreshadowing, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy to do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I couldn't help myself saying foreshadowing. But just, let's look at this just a little bit. Let's, third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place. He goes with his son and some servants, and there's a donkey there. Now, it doesn't say this, but it's his precious beloved son, and I would, I, I, would feel pretty confident in guessing who was riding that donkey coming up to the place of sacrifice. And when Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, "There's God will provide a lamb. Now, we may think that Abraham is trying to pull a trick on his servants or even on his wife, Sarah. I know some... some sort of dramatizations of this passage give us that idea that Abraham is just willing to sacrifice Isaac and that's it, and he's going to trick people into doing it. But that's not the direction that the text takes us, because Abraham tells the servants that he's going up with his son and he and his son are coming back down. And there's really no reason for us to think that Abraham believed otherwise. He may not know how it's going to work out, he doesn't know how it could be possible that God could say, sacrifice this son to me, and also keep his promise of giving him an inheritance and children by his son Isaac. Abraham might not know how that's going to work out. But he does know that God has promised this. God who promised this son has provided him, and so Somehow, some way, the Lord will provide for this promised son. But do you notice also there's a difference 
between what Abraham says will be provided and what actually is provided. Abraham says the Lord will provide a lamb. But what does Abraham end up sacrificing? A ram whose horn is caught in the thicket. And just as I don't, I don't think Abraham was wrong to believe that God would provide a lamb, to believe that God would provide, as, as the name that he knew God by, the Lord will provide. He was just looking way further ahead than many of us are able to look. Because if Abraham says the Lord will provide a lamb, then where is that lamb? Well, you know, what, what, what is John the Baptist famous for saying when he sees Jesus at the baptism? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Lamb that Abraham knew the Lord would provide is the Lamb that John the Baptist saw And what do we learn from this name? We learn from the earlier name, the Lord will provide. Just hang on to that sometime when you need it. The Lord will provide. But what do we learn from this name, the Lamb of God? What's the next thing John says? Who takes away the sin of the world? We learn that he takes away our sins. And how does Jesus, the Lamb of God, take away our sins? Well, it's as a lamb takes away sins. He accomplishes it as the lambs of the sacrifices do, by dying. Just as a recap, then. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Taking God's name in vain means using it in a way that is not proper. But just remember, as Christians, God's name is upon us. So it's not just what comes out of our mouths, G-O-D, Jesus, Lord. That, that is a way to take God's name in vain. But the way that we live, because God's name is upon us, we can take his name in vain when we live in a way that is not proper to how he has called us to live. And when we do that, we incur guilt, condemnation that deserves death. And the only way to avoid that death is with a sacrifice that dies instead. A sacrifice that the Lord will provide. The Lord did provide. The Lord who is merciful and gracious, forgiving sin, and not letting the guilty go free because the guilt is transferred to the Lamb of God. Just like an Israelite could lay his hands on the head of that goat and transfer ceremonially only the guilt onto that animal so that when it died, the guilt would go and be put away. 
just pointing forward and for us pointing backward to this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that God can be merciful and gracious to us and not just clear guilt without doing something about it. Have you taken Jesus as the Lamb of God in a real practical way? In the way that the Israelite put his hands actually on the head of the animal and confessed his sins, knowing this is the only way I'm not going to die, is if this animal takes it instead of me, if this animal dies instead of me. Jesus can only save you if you give him your sins, if you confess your sins upon him as the sin sacrifice. And you have to give them to him as sins, not as little trifles, not as small mistakes, not as things that you could make excuses for or fix for yourself, but as, Jesus, I'm giving you this thing that is death. Nothing less than death that I'm giving you, Jesus. Nothing less than vinegar to drink and a whip upon your back and nails in your hands and feet. That's what my sins are. That's what I'm giving you, Jesus. I'm giving you a cross to die on. That's my gift to you, Jesus, because that's all I have to give you. And if you don't give him these things, if you don't give him your sins, you will have to keep them for yourself. You can't put them away any other way. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And he, Jesus, does take sins. Not just symbolically, like the animals sacrificed of old. He takes them truly. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God the Lord provided. He is Jesus. The name that the angel told Joseph to name him because he will save his people from their sins. He will, not might. He takes away the sin of the world. Not maybe, not covering, not make excuses for, but takes them away. So really, truly, you have to have Jesus take them away. And you have to have Jesus take them away as bitter, terrible, horrible sins. Not as, not as something half good or half baked or whatever. But as Jesus, I'm laying my hands on your head and confessing my sins. And I know that by doing that, I'm killing you. And you have to take it. Because I can't. And of course, this is the lamb that John sees in Revelation standing, looking as though he was slain because he was slain, 
and raised and standing. So, confess your sins on Jesus, and he will take them away. There is no other that will. And then live as those who have been named by his name as Christians. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have given us. You have given us the sacrifice for sins. The fountain that can wash us clean. The lamb who was slain. The lamb who was from the foundation of the world. Who was slain for us. And you have shared us your name that we might know you. Know who you are. Not just not just know about you, but know you so deeply and truly. So Lord, I pray that we would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and like those who stood by John the Baptist, we would start and follow him and continue following him. No one else is able to, but he is mightily, mightily able, does, truly does, Save his people. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us his people. Amen.